All right, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles. I almost left mine on the floor underneath Shane, um, but he did just tell me that if in the event that that occurred, he would be more than willing to toss it up to me. Uh, oh, he's going to toss me his. Uh, so anyways, let's get our way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Over the last couple weeks, we've been taking chapter 9 and did so last week in its entirety. The week before, we hit chapter 8 in its entirety. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 is those three chapters really function as a set together. And uh, the, the topic that is being discussed is food sacrifice to idols. And that's where Paul begins in chapter 8. Referencing now about, now concerning food offered to idols. And then in chapter 9 he has some other things. But while the conversation is going to be about food and idolatry and what is happening and how the Corinthians should interact with those things. The, the, the focus changes a little bit here this morning, and Paul continues to address these different preference issues that exist in the church, where some people in the church have some convictions about some things that may be different than the convictions that people in the church have about other things. And that's where he began in chapter 8. And he was addressing in chapter 8 things that weren't necessarily sinful. So by that, I mean when he addresses the issue of food offered to idols, he makes the point that it's not really about the food, that the food doesn't actually endear you to God, it doesn't keep you away from God, but rather than use some freedom you have to go and eat the food that's in a temple of an idol, consider those in the church, consider your brothers and sisters who might really struggle if they saw you doing that. And so it wasn't necessarily an argument of, hey, that's sin, you need to not ever do that. It was an argument of, hey, love your brother well. Love your sister well. Now, he did end up saying, if you don't love them well, that actually is sin. And, and we, we, we thought about and talked about two weeks ago how we, we kind of have to be in each other's lives to the extent that we, we know these things. We, we know where our choices might negatively affect one another and we need to make different choices because of it and so here was kind of the big idea of chapter 8 was that love is greater than knowledge and that's where he began and he's acknowledging to the Corinthians in verses 1 to 3 that if, if all you guys are focused on is knowledge there's going to actually come with that an arrogance that if you're going to be able to say, wait a minute, idols aren't real, they're just statues, so it doesn't really matter if we go to a temple that's for an idol, then we're just going to go and eat. Well, if that's all you do, you've missed the fact that you need to love one another. And so love will actually build up where knowledge left alone and all by itself will, he uses the word puff up or cause arrogance we have the English expression, he's full of hot air. And that's the idea here. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. But then in verses 4 to 8, he just says, look, food's just food. 
But in 9 to 12, we have the instruction that we are to eat in ways that are loving. And we just try to apply that into some, some of the preference issues that could be in existence today in our church. Things that aren't necessarily right or wrong, but just different ways to engage that we just got to be mindful. We thought about some examples from maybe decades ago where playing cards weren't encouraged and because that's that's something you just needed to stay away from. That dancing perhaps made the list. Going to the movie theater made the list. I've been shared stories of previous pastors who uh, would, would walk up Philadelphia Avenue and kind of spy on what was happening at Main Street and who was going into the theater at Main Street and then would casually slip that into their sermons on the next Sunday morning. And I mean, this is for probably 40 or 50 years ago. Um, it, it's a preference issue. Going to the theater, we're not going to say is necessarily right or wrong, but we've got to be mindful. We even threw out the example of alcohol fits there. The Bible doesn't strictly prohibit all alcohol use. It certainly does drunkenness. And I would imagine if we polled the audience, there would be some different convictions about what and how believers should engage with alcohol. We've got to be aware of that. And if, and if that engagement causes somebody else to stumble, then the conclusion is that we choose to never do that out of love for them. And we, we choose to lay down our rights and surrender ourselves out of love for them. And that's where Paul goes then in chapter 9. And chapter 9 is first a, a, what amounts to be a bit of a defense of his ministry. Now we don't know exactly who was coming and, and attacking him. And even if it was like a full on attack, that comes actually in the letter of 2 Corinthians. But here he says, look, I, I'm going to put some things forward as a defense here. And in the first 18 verses, he just walks through how he consistently tried to model to the Corinthians the surrendering and the submitting of his rights. He says this, am I not free to eat or drink? Well, the implication is, yeah, you are. Am I not free to have a wife? The implication is, yeah, you are. Am I not free to receive financial compensation from you, church in Corinth? The implication is, yeah, you are. And he says, but look, I, I surrendered all of it. And I want to be an example to you and what it looks like to surrender your rights. So the Apostle Paul would never say, don't tread on me. He would say, I lay me down. And I'm going to surrender and to the Jew, whether that be somebody that's ethnically Jewish or just somebody that's following Old Testament um, laws. He said, I'm, I'm going to do what they do so that I don't have any cause in me to distract them from the gospel. And so if I'm with those brothers and sisters or with those individuals for me for, as an opportunity to share the gospel with them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the right type of hand washing and I'm not going to eat pork and I'm not, and, and you can kind of go right on down the line. But then he says, look, to, to those who aren't bound by those things, I'm not going to act like I'm bound to those things. So to those not under the law, those not following all 600 and some commandments given in the Old Testament, I'm not going to do that as well. So I'll have a double bacon cheeseburger. And we can mix milk and meat. And we can have pork. Because I don't want to be a distraction. 
And then he says, to those who are weak, and he ties the argument all the way back to chapter 8. To those that are weak, I'm going to actually do things that don't affect them negatively. And I'm going to do everything I can to not be a distraction. So then, by the time we get to chapter 10, Paul's not really specifically addressing preference issues in the way that we have thought about them over the past two weeks. The, the idea is still the same, but the focus changes on how believers engage with things that actually are sinful. So we need to just recognize there's a subtle shift in the focus of chapter 10 as it contrasts with chapters 8 and 9, even though the idea or the topic at hand is still food sacrifice to idols. Let me try to just give you another way to think about that. In chapter 8, Paul said to the Corinthians, yes, you're right. You can go eat at the temple of Apollos and eat the meat sacrificed to the idol that was there and the god Apollos because you're right. He's not actually living. It's just a statue. But he says don't do it out of love for one another. By the time we get to chapter 10... He's actually going to change a little bit of the focus, theologically speaking. And he's going to say, no, you guys actually need to understand these matters a little bit more deeply. While the idol is just a statue, while the stake may be just a stake, there's actually something spiritually happening and taking place as well. And so the conclusion he makes in the middle of chapter 10, which gets sustained throughout chapter 10, is don't do it because you're actually engaging with the demonic. There's something spiritually taking place. So his argument changes from don't do it out of love for one another to don't do it out of an awareness that these things are serious. They matter. There is something spiritually that happens and takes place when we engage in certain things physically. So here's a question that I think is, is good for us to consider, and we'll return back to it at the end today and come back to it again tomorrow or next Sunday as well. Should believers enjoy what unbelievers worship? Should believers enjoy what unbelievers worship? I think that's the question that's kind of in the background of this text. And the examples that are given in answering this question are done so from the history of the nation of Israel. And Paul rehashes for them or brings to mind to them all the things that took place with the Israelites the ways that they erred, the mistakes that they made, and how they didn't pay as close of attention to some of these things as they should have, and how the consequences were dire. So should believers enjoy what unbelievers worship? I'm going to give you an answer as we get to the end today. It probably is not going to need nearly as clear of an answer as some of you may desire, but, but we're going to have to just kind of think through and interact with this question. This is one of those questions that, that it, it might be an uncomfortable question, one that doesn't have a clear, cut-and-dry answer to it, in part because of just how we, we see different individuals 
or different aspects of our culture engage differently in worship. And we could talk about celebrity worship. We could talk about sports worship. We could talk, I mean, there, there's all sorts of aspects where you can see worship happening by, by perhaps even those that wouldn't say they're worshiping. We've even tried to clarify that and even trying to give a definition of what worship is as we think about what hangs on the wall and what that means for us and how we interact with it and what we're called to be as disciples. That just the, It begins with a recognition that all of us are worshiping at all times. And the question becomes then secondarily, what or who are we worshiping? This isn't an easy question to answer, and in some ways I'm really grateful for that because it's not one of those that we're just going to put a cookie cutter on and walk out of here. I think this one might need to stew a little bit. We might need to stew on this one for a little bit, and it's going to affect and infect all the areas of our lives if we let it. But I think the text in chapter 10 takes us there. So before we go any further and hop in the text, let's pray, and then we'll begin to walk through the first several verses. God, we come to you now and ask that you would just help us to see what it is that we need to see, what it is you want us to see, that we would hear what it is that you want us to hear. God, that we would not be like the nation of Israel that saw and heard and just turned the other way. God, we pray that we would, as we look at your word, consider what you've said, that we'd think on these things, that we would desire the type of of change in life and surrender and focus and passion that you call us to. So God, I just pray that you would just come and, and your spirit would do work in this place. That, that he would do work in us collectively. But that you would also meet with every one of us individually. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, our passage is going to break down in really these three ways and these three big ideas, and we'll, we'll kind of break them down as we go. The first is that experiential knowledge does not automatically lead to heart change. I'm going to try to unpack the first several verses of chapter 10. It's that experiential knowledge does not automatically lead to heart change. The second, in verses 12, 13, and 14, Paul gives some commands And he gives commands to be on guard. And then he wraps that up with 15 to 22 in applying the commands that he has just given. And he he, he broadens and deepens the theology behind what it is the Corinthians were doing. And says there's a whole lot more involved to these actions than you might realize. But verses 1 to 11, let's think through this idea that experiential knowledge does not automatically lead to heart change. So what you know is not enough in and of itself. And that takes us all the way back to the beginning of chapter 8. Where knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. 
even experiential knowledge, even having seen the most miraculous things that one could see is not enough, does not automatically lead to heart change. And here's where Paul begins, and let's look then at verse 1 of chapter 10. For I want you to know, brothers, or brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And what Paul's going to do here, and this is fascinating, and if, you, if you're uh, like probably the majority of us, not, not totally sure how the Old Testament interacts with the New Testament, or maybe to understand all of the stories of, of what took place in the Old Testament and the nation of Israel and how you and I even relate to that. Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians is an incredibly helpful chapter. It's one of those that I go to to just help me unpack and understand. It's similar in that regard to Acts chapter 6 and 7, Psalm 105 and 106, where you have these instances where the author there takes essentially all of Israel's history and compresses it down and gives you some really big themes to think through things in. And that's what Paul does here. He takes all of Israel's history... And he compresses it and says, I want you to think about this. Or at least, well, I shouldn't say all of Israel's history. Let's say the first 40 years of Israel's history before they got into the promised land. And this is how I want you to think about this. This is what happened. This is what is going on. But it's amazing to me that in 1 Corinthians 10, he says and uses the phrase, our fathers. He's writing to a church that's not only ethnically Jewish. He's writing to a church that's mixed in its ethnicity. There's Jews there. There's Gentiles there. There's going to be Greeks there and Romans there and, and Israelites there. And he says, no, look, look, Moses is our father. Caleb and Joshua, our father. Abraham, Aaron, our father. He's asking them and inviting them in to identify themselves into the, the redemptive storyline of the Old Testament. And then he's going to give to them five different occurrences that happened. He's going to use the word all five different times. It's important. If you, if you underline or highlight in your Bible, that word all is worth noting. And he says this. Our fathers were all under the cloud. When God led the Israelites out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 14, he led them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Paul is referencing Exodus chapter 14 and God's leading them with and through the cloud. And he says they were all led by the cloud Secondly, and all passed through the sea. I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong reference to begin with. The cloud is Exodus 13. The passing through the sea is Exodus 14. All passed through the sea. That's a reference to when the Lord split the Red Sea. And the Israelites walked on dry land through the Red Sea. Exodus 14. He said all of them, all of them were there. All of that generation that was led out of Egypt were there. They all saw the cloud. The implication there, I think, is they all saw the pillar of fire. Exodus 14, they all walked through the sea. They all watched the Egyptian army be conquered as the Lord brought the waters back in on top of them. 
And he continues in verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now that's a really difficult verse to try to understand. We're not going to be able to step through all of what Paul is saying in that verse. it's, It's clear from other portions of Scripture, and the point Paul's making in chapter 10, he's not referring to baptism as, a, as something similar to what we would celebrate here. I think what he is doing is he is referencing that they followed Moses. That they put their faith and trust in Moses who was being led by God, and as Moses walked through on dry land and followed this cloud... They followed along with him. You can actually see in Exodus 15, there's a song of Moses. At the tail end of 14, the waters come back in, the Egyptian army is conquered. Moses starts singing in chapter 15, praising the Lord for what he has Done. Moses becomes then the leader that they follow for the next 40 years because he's also the leader they grumble against for the next 40 years. So that baptism there, I don't want us to think of, uh, of baptism in the sense that we understand it. There, there's some things that Paul's trying to communicate here as he's just unpackaging Israel's history. The point is, experiential knowledge does not automatically lead to heart change. They walked through the Red Sea. They followed the cloud. They followed Moses. But as we'll see come verse 5, it just wasn't enough. But the third and fourth one all ate the same spiritual food. That's Exodus 16. Manna from heaven. Six days the Lord's going to bring manna. He's going to send quail. There's going to be like this little bread In the morning, I think the quail came in the evening. You were only to gather enough for that particular day. However, the last day of the week, you were to gather double so that you had some for the day of rest. Because the Lord wasn't going to send it out on the day of rest. And he provided them food. Fifthly, and they all drank from the same spiritual drink. That's Exodus 17. Do you see what we've done here as Paul's unpackaging, or repackaging, I should say, Israel's history? Trying to give him in a nutshell some things to understand as he's going to make this point about knowledge is not enough to lead to heart change. I want you guys to think back to Exodus 13, and Exodus 14, and Exodus 15, and Exodus 16, and Exodus 17. And I want you to think of those miraculous events that the nation of Israel participated in. So the spiritual drink in Exodus 17, the people wondered, where are we going to have water? We're thirsty. And Moses takes his staff, he strikes a rock. The rock begins to give drink. Paul actually tells us a little bit about that rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Experiential knowledge does not automatically lead to heart change. And Paul's saying here, Jesus himself was giving them water. But it wasn't enough. And you get that in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. That statement is an unbelievable understatement. 
there were two people from the group that left Egypt, there were two people that went into the promised land that the Lord set them off for and had told them when they left Egypt, he was planning for them. Joshua and Caleb. I think it's recorded that there were some 600,000 men that walked out of Egypt, not counting women and children. So, I mean, you, you potentially are looking well over a million plus people. Two of them got to the promised land. Experiential knowledge does not automatically lead to heart change. And these Israelites, they saw the cloud. They saw the fire. They walked through the Red Sea. They ate the manna that the Lord provided. They drank the drink that he gave them from rocks. There's some scholars that even believe the rock might have actually followed them around like the cloud and the pillar of fire. That it was kind of just always there, always providing for them, like the quail and the manna. And we, I mean, I, I hear that and I think, like, so we're just talking about like a little boulder just kind of moving around. It, I don't know. But if the Lord's sending baked goods in the morning and birds at night for them to eat, like it's not that far of a stretch to think that there's a rock just hanging out as well that's always giving them something to drink. But experiential knowledge does not automatically lead to heart change. These people had some of the most magnificent spiritual experiences. But with most of them, all but two, God was not pleased. Moses himself actually, at the end of his life, struck the rock again. And that's what kept him from going to the promised land. Because he disobeyed the Lord. He was told not to do it. People rose up and grumbled and he did it. And God said, all right, Moses, you're going to just sit here on this side of the Jordan and watch. You're not actually going to put your feet there. Experiential knowledge does not automatically lead to heart change. In verse 6, we get a little bit of a glimpse. This is kind of what helps us unpack the Old Testament. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Wow. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And what's going to happen next is Paul's going to move from giving five different examples of what it is that the Israelites participated in as amazing, spiritual, miraculous experiences. And he's going to follow that up with several different instances where they demonstrated, they completely ignored who God was and what he had done for them and followed their own desires and their own passions and they found themselves led astray. And what happened in those moments was God actually brought judgment upon the nation. Some of the, some of the ugliest parts of the Old Testament, some of the, the bloodiest parts of the Old Testament, the most uncomfortable parts of the Old Testament, is when God is bringing judgment on his people for their sin. 
But this is exactly what Paul says are examples for us to learn from and take note of. And it's again one of those instances where we have a passage where if this, if we have a low view of God and who he is and his holiness and his righteousness and how other he is, we, we find ourselves maybe wanting to shake our fist against the injustice that took place. But if we have a view of God that the Bible informs, we might actually find ourselves trembling in fear. Because what's to keep him from doing that to us? I think that's part of the point, actually. These things took place as examples so that we we might not desire evil. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat up or sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. That was and is a reference to the golden calf, Exodus 32. And it's almost a direct quotation for what is recorded in Exodus 32 that took place. So you remember that instance? Moses is on the mountain. He's being given the Ten Commandments by God, like God's actually writing them in stone with his finger. Moses comes down, he finds that the Israelites were bored, waiting for him, wondering what had happened to him. They tell Aaron, hey, let's, let's make some gods for us to worship. And they begin to do so. And it's recorded that about 3,000 men that day were judged. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is Numbers 25 where the nation of Israel found themselves intermingling with other nations and beginning to worship Baal. And the way they worshipped Baal was through sexual immorality. It wasn't like they just found themselves attending a different church building that morning and singing songs from a different hymnal. There was something a whole lot more happening and in play there. And it included, the worship of Baal included sexual immorality. Numbers 25 records just an amazing moment of sweeping judgment. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people were judged in a single day by the Lord for their actions. And here Paul's saying, don't desire evil like they did. Thirdly, he says this, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's Numbers 21. There the issue was their grumbling over the food that the Lord was providing for them. They got tired of the pastries in the morning and the quail in the evening. When are you going to give us something different? I think Numbers 21 even says, when are you going to give us food for we loathe this loathsome food? It's an amazing statement of irony. We're recognizing you're giving us food, but we don't like what you're giving giving to us. So when are you going to give us something that we actually like and the lord sent fiery serpents into the camp and if somebody was bit they died moses intercedes for the people 
The Lord says, make a bronze serpent. Put it up on a pole. If somebody's bitten and they look at the pole, they'll be healed. How are they healed? By putting their faith and trust in the promises of God. That snake on a pole is not going to do anything for them medically. The healing came through putting their trust in the fact that God said something. You know what Jesus does in John 3, 15? He says to Nicodemus, just like that serpent was raised up, so the Son of Man will be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Jesus tells Nicodemus on that cloak and dagger covert conversation they had that night, I'm like the serpent from Numbers 21. And so when people put their faith and trust in me, they'll be saved. Don't be like the Israelites, though, that put Christ to the test and grumbled about the provision that they had been given. And in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. There's not enough in verse 10 for us to specifically pinpoint an instance in Israel's history. However, what is there probably, probably is a reference to what is Korah's rebellion. And that's this amazing story where a whole bunch of people rebelled. And Moses said, okay, we're going to put a test. We'll see if you guys are right or if I'm right. And here's the test. If the ground opens up and swallows all of you, we know that you were wrong. And then like Moses steps back and the ground opened up and swallowed all of them. And the book of Numbers records that about 15,000 people lost their life that day. Jude, the New Testament book Jude, actually references Korah's rebellion. It's a, it was a significant event in Israel's history. But lest we think this is just like Old Testament God, and, 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 and lest we ever think that like Old Testament God was angry and vengeful and New Testament God is nice and playful and loving and all of those things, let me just remind you of Ananias and Sapphira. Acts 5, post-resurrection of Jesus Christ, post-ascension of Jesus Christ, indwelling of the Holy Spirit has already come because that came in Acts 2. Ananias and Sapphira presume upon God's grace and walk into the place and lie. And in that gathering, each of them lose their lives. Now, I would submit to you that there's not an angry Old Testament God and a loving New Testament God, but a biblical God who is holy and righteous and takes sin seriously and at the very same time loving and gracious and merciful. And here Paul's reminding us, experiential knowledge does not automatically lead to heart change. And in verse 11, he gives another summary statement. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for us and our instruction on who the end of the ages has come. And then he, in verse 12, 13, and 14, gives some commands. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he 
fall. That word take heed would be consider exactly what you know. That word that Paul uses there that's translated as take heed is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Actually in the book of Philippians chapter 3 where for three times and three times right in a row he says danger, danger, danger. Look out, take heed, consider. And I think that's part of the force of what he brings here where he says look Anyone who thinks he stands, let him consider the danger of just that assumption. Because experiential knowledge is not enough. It doesn't automatically lead to heart change. You can have some of the most amazing spiritual experiences and it does not necessarily invariably mean that you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ and have, been, and, and, have, and have expressed and now desire to be singular in your focus and unyielding in your passion. Verse 13 gives us A way to kind of understand the link from old to new. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may endure it. The idea there is that we we are not going to struggle in different ways from what the Israelites struggled in. So let's just think of that. I mean, how many times have we been faced with sexual temptation from what the world has to offer? How many times have we been tempted to grumble against what the Lord has provided to us and not express gratefulness and gratitude for His provision? I I can think of a lot of times in my life like that. That, God, I wish I didn't have this. I wish I had that. Thanks for the quail but can I have some beef if we just give ourselves some honest feedback we're not that different verse 13 says that you guys aren't that different but God didn't force them into sin and he doesn't force us into sin No temptation that we are going to face or experience is is not common to the human experience. But you know what's constant is the faithfulness of God. And how in the midst of the temptation we face, He protects us from not being tempted beyond our ability and provides the way out. Therefore, verse 14, flee from idolatry. See, in chapter 8, Paul didn't disagree with the theology of the Corinthian church that led them to conclude, we can go and eat in the temple of Apollos. Like, he didn't disagree with their theology. He said, yeah, okay, theologically speaking, you guys are right on track. But he's going to change the argument now. He's going to command them to flee from idolatry. Can believers enjoy, should believers enjoy what unbelievers worship? The commands to flee idolatry. 
A near identical command to what was given in chapter 6, flee sexual immorality. The two major categories that show up now in chapter 10, do not be idolaters, do not indulge in sexual immorality. And so in verse 15, he picks up, changes the focus, unpacks a little bit more theology for him about who exactly God is and what exactly takes place. And he says this, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The implied answer to that question, yes it is. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Implied answer, yes it is. Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So Paul here, in in, in answering this question and giving this command, says, I want you guys to actually think about communion. I want you to think about what takes place there. Is it not the participation with Jesus? In his blood and his body as he took those elements on the night he was betrayed and he took them from the Passover. I think it was Exodus 12 where those things are recorded. And he tells his disciples, look, these things are different now. They represent me. And that word participation is actually the word that we get elsewhere translated fellowship. So when you eat the bread, and you drink the cup, you're having fellowship with Jesus. And he takes the argument one step further, and as you do that together, you're having fellowship with one another, because there's one bread, there's one body of Christ. We all partake of that. We all have fellowship together in that. Some of the best ways that I have found to uh, just try to bring some definition to the word and the idea of fellowship is that we are bound to and blessed by. And fellowship has a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. Vertically, we're bound to Christ and we are blessed by Christ. Horizontally, in fellowship, we are bound to one another and we are blessed by one another. And the main thing that will destroy fellowship is unrepentant sin. Idolatry. Sexual immorality. Grumbling. And we can go back to all those examples the Apostle Paul has given. And I say unrepentant sin because none of us are perfect and we're all going to err against each other. And if any, if any of you are married like I am, you know you've got that moment or those moments in your marriage where you've done something and the fellowship's broken to some extent. And what restores it is repentance. What restores it is, I was wrong. I sinned against you. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done this. Or I misunderstood what you said. And I, whatever it might be, what restores fellowship is repentance. But where there's no repentance, fellowship doesn't get restored. There may be forgiveness expressed by the one who's been hurt. But fellowship hasn't been restored because repentance hasn't been sought. 
unrepentant sin will break fellowship faster than anything else. And here the Apostle Paul says, when you have and partake of the bread and you have and partake of the cup, you are fellowshipping with Jesus and one another. And here he's setting up the instructions he's going to give in chapter 11 when he specifically returns to the issue of communion and the way that they approached that. But he continues in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants or fellowshippers in the altar? What do I imply then? Here's what he's saying. He's like, I want you to think about Aaron and Levites and what was happening in the whole Old Testament sacrificial system where the Israelites brought their goat to the temple. And their goat was sacrificed for atonement for them. And some of the goat was placed on the altar as a burnt offering. Other parts of the goat were given to the priests for them to eat. And then some other parts of the goat were eaten by the people. I want you to think about this. And the idea here is that there is something both physically and spiritually happening when sacrifices are made. What do I imply then? He's going to give us his answer That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants or fellowshipping with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So he says again and brings back into the issue eating and drinking. That's where it began in chapter 8. It was at the forefront of chapter 9. Do I not have the freedom to eat and drink as I please? He returns to it in chapter 10. You need to be careful what you eat and where you eat and what you drink and where you drink. Because it's not food that's the issue. The food's just food. The steak is just steak. It's not actually the little statue that might be there that the idol is representing the God. It's just, that's just an idol. Like, that doesn't have anything. But behind both of those, there's actually a demonic presence in the worship of those who don't know the Lord. And when you engage in that, you begin to walk very closely, if not all in, in the fellowshipping of the demonic. He says, I don't want you to do that. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? It's an amazing, amazing question. Because I believe it's in the Old Testament the Lord tells the Israelites, I'm a consuming fire. I'm a jealous God. I want your singular devotion and focus. And he takes issue with those who don't give that to him. I mean, this chapter, chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians, is one of the strongest warning chapters in the New Testament. 
He's saying there's danger here if you're not careful. There's danger here. If you're not singular in your focus and unyielding in your passion and you think it's all right to kind of dabble and play around with the things that consume the lives of unbelievers and their actions and worship. So should believers enjoy what unbelievers worship? I told you I wasn't going to give you a clear answer. In part because I don't exactly know where all the lines are because I can make an argument that all of us worship all the time. And you can go to a Phillies ball game and you can find people worshiping the Phillies. You can go to a Phillies ball game and find people just enjoying the game of baseball. That's okay. So the answer I would give is maybe. How about that for a punt? Here's what I'd say, though. It, it depends on what it is, and it depends on who you're with. Okay? Depends on what it is. It depends on who you're with. So let me say this. Here's some questions to maybe ask as you try to wrestle around with the specifics of an activity. Should I go to this movie? Should I go to that restaurant? Should I go to this? Should I go to that? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should we play cards? Should we dance? I mean, all of these kind of questions. I, I hear some Here's some questions for you. Does this activity stir or rob my affections for Christ? So when I engage in whatever it is that I'm going to engage in, am I going to love Jesus more after I do so? Or am I going to find myself distracted from who Jesus is and what he's called me to be? Really, The answer to the question becomes fairly clear at that point. If, if going and seeing that movie, whatever the movie is, is going to cause me to be distracted from who Jesus is, I shouldn't go to the movie. If it's going to cause me to love him more, okay. So is it going to stir or rob my affections for Christ? These next two questions will unpack a little further next week but to set them up here they are and it's where we've already been in chapter 6 does this activity lead me into bondage is it enslaving so if I engage in this am I going to be enslaved by this playing euchre with your family perhaps not enslaving, playing blackjack at Atlantic City, perhaps enslaving. So the issue might not be the face cards, but it might be where you are and who you're with. And is it stirring your affections for Christ or robbing your affections for Christ? Is it going to enslave you or not? Does it build up the one I'm with? Will the people that I'm with be encouraged will they be built up and strengthened in love or will they somehow be led to having their affections for christ robbed and for those of us that have little ones in our lives running around our homes this is huge because there's some things that i could watch that may not stir or they, they may not rob my affections for christ but they write they may rob my children's affections for christ The issue is no longer about me. 
I might not be weak in my conscience, but if they are, it becomes my responsibility to stay away from whatever that is so that I don't hurt them. So does that activity build up them in love? Chapter 10, I think, shouts from the mountaintops. God is serious about his word. He's told us some things to do. He's told us some things to not do. He's serious. He's serious about sin. You can be a part of the most amazing spiritual experiences like the Israelites were. You could see clouds. You could walk through seas. You could be given your breakfast every morning by God himself. It doesn't automatically lead to heart change. But being singular in our focus and unyielding in our passion is going to do two things for us. It's going to guide us. It's going to give us a template to kind of push questions of life through. Should I do this? Is it singular in the focus of Christ? But it's going to guard us as well. It's going to guard us from this consuming fire, this untamable God who we shouldn't think we can just put in a box and kind of bring out on Sunday mornings when we want to and move and, and, and kind of do with what we want and what we desire because he's a consuming fire. And we're not going to get our hands around him to control him. Let's pray. I asked the band to give us the song Cornerstone as we close. Because of the time, I'm still going to ask them to do it. But you may be free to sing or go. Would you join me in prayer? God, would you help us to that end? To be singular in our focus. Unyielding in our passion. That as we just think about the choices before us today, that we would, that we would consider them in light of whether they, they cause us to love you more or they, they rob our affections from you. God, would you help us to consider and think about how our actions can love and build up others around us. Would you help us be singular in our focus, unyielding in our passion? And it's in Jesus' name we pray.